be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon. This is Joe Schuldenrein speaking from New York City, and I'm pleased to have a special guest with us, Dr. Elizabeth Stone, who is a professor of anthropology at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And our special segment today is going to focus on the archaeology of Iraq. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Stone is a professor at the Department of Anthropology at the State University of Stony Brook. As I said, she received her bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania in 1971, a master's degree at Harvard in 1973, and a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Chicago in 1979. She has authored and co-authored numerous books and articles, and her research interests include the archaeology of the Old World, Near Eastern Archaeology, State Formation, and Ancient Mesopotamian Economy and Society. Welcome to the program, Dr. Stone. Thank you for appearing. Hi. Uh, I would like to begin by, if you would, uh, talking about your early work as how you got started in doing the archaeology of Mesopotamia, alternatively one of the cradles of civilization, how you got involved in it, and how your research took flow, and and what what particular aspects of the archaeology you uh, started working in, and how that evolved through time. Okay, well, I guess I, I, I got into archaeology when I was about six, I think, um, and was, I saw that it was a historian. I was growing up in Oxford in England, which is where I am right now, uh, and as the, I guess, the 60s became, began to an end, and England began to slowly dig out from World War II, one of the things they started doing is building new buildings, and they pretty much needed people who could dig holes, and so I think I got actually to dig out my first dig when I was eight, and by the time I was 11, I was spending pretty much all of my free time digging holes or washing pottery in the basement of the museum or whatever. Um, and then when I when we moved to the States when I was 14, um, I still you know, I kind of pined for that, but in the summers I dug at Winchester for four years when I was in high school. Uh, 
And by the end of that, I was pretty sure that I was really not interested in medieval Britain. Um, and so, and that I wanted, say, more civilizations. I think I'd re- read Woolley's Foundations in the Dust. Um, I was fairly unclear of what I wanted, but I had a note of introduction to Bernard Wales, who was, of course, the, the British archaeologist at, at the University of Pennsylvania when I went to college. I explained what I wanted to do, and he was actually quite nice since I didn't want to do what he did. And he put me on to talk to um, both the Robert Dyson, who was the um, guy who worked in Iran, uh, and uh, the guy who worked in Mesoamerica. And I talked to Robert Dyson, and he took me to Iran that summer. I think if somebody had taken me to Mesoamerica, I'd probably be a Mesoamericanist. Um, and so I spent a lot of my undergraduate career, I thought, or summers at least, living in Iran. But by the time I had finished, I had also taken Akkadian, so I'd taken Mesopotamian languages. And I was, I, I, was, I was never much, maybe because of growing up in England, I was never much like privilege. So I always wanted to know more about the, the common person. Um, and I was really intrigued by Mesopotamia because there you have a lot of um, houses that people have dug, which is relatively unusual to the relatively large domestic areas. And out of those domestic areas, you get written documents. And, so um, I started off going to Harvard, where I thought I could do that by working with uh, Tokov Jakobsen, who was the Assyriologist, and Karl Andekolovsky, and uh, the archaeologist and anthropology, and that really didn't work out at all well. Um, I mean, my, my fundamental feeling was, was that at least anthropology was one of the most sexist institutions I'd ever been into. Uh, so I bailed out of that pretty quickly and went to Chicago, and there I was really able to do exactly what I wanted and everybody was really supportive. One of the questions that I... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, so, you know, I wrote my dissertation on a bunch of houses where we have the written documents so you know who lived there, what they were doing, um, you know, what their economy was, who they were marrying, all that kind of information, and you could get the documents into the houses. Uh, And in sense, I mean, I've been playing around with that kind of stuff um, ever since. I mean, always... Interested not so much just, I mean, I suppose I started off being interested in houses and households. I'm now interested in, you know, how whole settlements are put together, but, you know, with an, with an eye to the regular population and not just the kings, queens, and, prince, and, and, and priests. Um, and so that's really been a kind of a long term interest of mine. And I think in that regard, that's, that's I think, one of the major contributions, certainly, that people like you have done by sort of transporting the study of archaeology from sort of a classical perspective with a focus on architecture and, as you probably would also agree, the rich people and ruling people, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, uh, the sort of trans, transfer of that perspective to understanding how folks living in the settlements actually lived and, you know, using anthropology sort of as an umbrella to, to express that kind of archaeology and to concentrate on things like settlement structures and social organization and uh, especially in your case, uh, translating the, the, uh, the written literature into something that would enable us to look at the structure of societies in a general way. In your 
your in your uh, experience, when did that transition occur in archaeology uh, with the sort of shifting focus from the rich people or for the from the kingdoms and the and the genealogies of the kings to a, a more thorough understanding of actual social organization of the average people? Well, I don't think it's really there yet. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, I think. If you look at, let's say, let's just look at two of the major centers for, for civilization, but it's three or four. Um, you know, if you look at Egypt, I mean, almost everything anyone's doing in Egypt has to do with uh, the rulers and the priests and people like that. And, I mean, there, there's occasionally people go off and look at a commoner cemetery, but very, very rarely. They don't have very much in the way of settlements that they can go off, and that's just an accident of preservation. In Mesopotamia, you know, most of the archaeologists still are coming out of the Near Eastern Studies focus, and they're going to be focusing on, you know, trying to dig up palaces and, and temples. I mean, that's certainly, if you look at the projects that were in the field, you know, right before the Gulf War, which is really probably the last time people were there. I mean, most of those projects were, were focusing on major buildings. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, you can look at Mesoamerica. I mean, the, the, the amount that we know, I mean, there are projects which are trying to look at the residential population, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to people who are uncovering yet another pyramid. So I don't think that's really there yet. Um, and um, I think it's too bad. Um, I think in places like the Indus Valley, uh, we don't really know where the palaces and temples are. Then you've had a lot more of that to the extent that people have been able to get into that area. And I don't think you've had very much of that in China, uh, or nor really in Peru. And I mean, those are the six major centers of complex society. Is there a different perspective? Is there a different perspective uh, depending, say, where the archaeologists are trained or what schools they're involved in, or what schools they're being trained in, or what nations they're being trained in? Do the British have a different perspective on it? And certainly the Americans obviously put a greater focus on anthropology, whereas archaeology per se is a discipline in many parts of the old world. Does that affect the nature of the excavations and the focus of the research? I don't think so. I think in terms of Mesopotamia, I'm fi- I find that the work of my British colleagues is probably more compatible with what I do than the work of my American colleagues. But, but that's because, I mean, I think that the, the emphasis on archaeology is still theoretically based in England, um, but in the United States. I and mean, a lot of the people who are doing archaeology are not teaching in anthropology departments. They're teaching in the recent studies departments. I mean, those are a lot of the people that, that are going there. Those are a lot of the institutions that have the funding uh, to support people without having to run around and getting grants um, so that in some ways it's easier for them to do that. But, you know, if you look at, or, or art departments, um, but if you look at, let's say, if you look at the American projects in the field in 1990, um, and there were five of them, I would say only ourselves and Susan Pollock um, came from an anthropological background um, and were asking anthropological questions, and Susan's project, you know, hasn't wound up not being that productive, unfortunately. 
And if, if, if we were to look at it, though, I mean, the UK, they're housed in departments of archaeology, which, you know, has uh, has a, a variety of different tentacles to it. I mean, you have, I, I would think, more of a methodological perspective than we do here in the States. I think, right? I think the theoretical stuff that's coming out, in terms of Mesopotamia, the theoretical stuff that's coming out from, you know, my British colleagues is, you know, more impressive than from my American colleagues. Even though uh, and that, but that's because, I mean, how many Americans, you know, you're, you're in a position where still in 1990, which is the last time Americans were really able to do field work in Iraq, you know, most of the people were coming out of, um, out of Near Eastern Studies programs. I mean, there are people who do very good work in the Near East and around, um, around, uh, Mesopotamia, and some of them begin to work in Kurdistan and places like that. Um, but still, I mean, half of them are going to be trained in, in Near East. They may be, so there, I don't think, you know, yes, maybe there is a newer generation who are asking more questions, but in terms of people who are actually interested in working in Mesopotamia, they're also coming out of um, Near Eastern Studies departments. And what's more, I mean, where you've got a younger generation who are asking interesting questions and going in an interesting direction for Mesopotamia, they all came out of the University of Chicago when Tony Wilkinson trained as a, really trained as a uh, geologist coming out of Britain was in, in, the, in the Near East Department of the University of Chicago. So it, it doesn't, it, you know, it, it, Mesopotamia, in a sense, has been dropped like a hot potato, has never really been dealt with other than by someone like Adams, um, right. or to a certain extent Henry Wright, in, um, in anthropology departments, and that's, that's, that's one of the problems. Let's look at, say, 1990 as sort of a, a major, you referenced it as, as a major turning point possibly in, in uh, Near Eastern or in Mesopotamian studies or in general studies uh, of that nature. Uh, what are we seeing in, in terms of the general knowledge base of Mesopotamia? What are the, the, the more riveting and significant finds since 1990? Well, I mean, in terms of field work, uh, zero. Fundamentally, um, I mean, because the logistics and the difficulties, that I'm most right? Excited about is the project that I've had uh, working with high-resolution satellite images, because that allows us to recover, in many cases, total plans of uh, a large number of sites, um, and you know, so we can see, you know, all the houses, all the roads, all the all the all the temples, all the palaces. But it's not just it's not. It's not, it's not discriminating in favor of the temples and palaces. If anything, it's discriminating in favor of the houses because there are more of them. Um, and it also doesn't discriminate between large and small sites. So you get very small sites and have very interesting stuff. And we didn't know anything about small sites. Nobody dug small sites, and you couldn't really get a permit to dig a small site. Um, so I think that's really kind of opening up, you know, a new window. And, you know, my hope is that, that when, you know, as archaeology begins to get going in the South, which is going to be a slow and complicated process, that, you know, people can use, you know, the maps that we're producing and use those to choose sites uh, that they're going to work on. And those won't necessarily be large sites. 
Well, getting back to that topic of looking for the small sites, I think a lot of that does have to do to some degree with a theoretical perspective where you're looking at the structure of settlements and the integration of settlements to a major big site, to a central place, if you will. And if you're looking for them, in a sense, you will find them, whereas if, you, if you're not looking for them and you're, if you're looking for the more monumental sites, that's what you're going to find and that's what you're going to focus on. Is that not true or... Is that well, what's happening? True, although it turns out when you look at the satellite imagery, the, the small sites are not little scruffy little villages, but they are in right. fact uh, just like <laughs> the cities, except in, smaller, in a smaller scale. And you've got rural palaces and rural temples and all kinds of very fancy buildings on small sites as well. So I think the avoidance of small sites has been the mistake if you're, <laughs> if you're interested in public buildings. Right. And how have our interpretive perspectives on the uh, integration of the small sites within within the greater uh, urban network? How has that changed in the past few years? Well, I, I think I think I think the written documentation has been has been useful, especially as work by uh, Peter Steinkeller um, on the text, especially from Uma. And then he's really argued that you have this very complicated um, countryside, and he's got texts that talk about you know the god kind of going for a holiday in his summer summer palace, summer temple, because his temple in the city is being renovated, and you've got other people you know other people kind of living in their summer palaces, their palaces out in the countryside, um, and you do have this real sense of this kind of complicated um, uh, rural area. And we've always known that you have very large numbers of people living in the cities, and the, the majority of them are farmers. And so, I mean, it looks as though, you know, if you could, you wanted to live in a city. And, and that may well be because you've got the political rights of being part of the assembly if you live in the city, and so you really want to be kind of in with the swing of things. You don't want to be kind of out in the sticks. And so, in right. some ways, you know, you either have settlements which look like many cities. They may be, you know, there's one site, Haradam, which the French excavated, which is it's only one hectare, so it's really small. So it's one sixty, at least sixty or eighty of Nashkanchati, the site that we worked on. But they really published it well, and you could compare all the artifacts they collected with the artifacts that we collected. And if you can think of them as representing different types of activities, the only artifact type that we had and they didn't were royal inscriptions. Every other kind of activity that was going on on our large city was also going on at this very small, absolutely small village-sized settlement. Uh, but, you know, it had a wall, it had streets, it had a mayor, it had texts, it had mm-hmm. metallurgy, it had all kinds of things going on, but it was very small scale. So it looks as though what, what the Mesopotamians did was instead of having something the way we do in the States, for example, where the suburbs are entirely different types of settlements from um, urban areas or in more agricultural areas. I mean, Britain right now, the villages are really kind of, or at least traditionally, agricultural villages. You don't have any, didn't have any of that in Mesopotamia. You really had a kind of continuation of a kind of urban lifestyle at multiple scales only when you get got too far away from the city, uh, that it was just, you know, you just had to kind of have your own settlement. And on that note, I think we're going to have to take a break, and we will return and discuss uh, some additional uh, developments in uh, Iraqi archaeology, Mesopotamian archaeology, with Dr. Elizabeth Stone after these words. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Have we got a show that will keep you on the pulse of the fashion world? Our hosts know fashion, and they have the inside look when it comes to fashion for our generation. Tune in to Fashion Beat on Voice America Kids. We'll discuss what's hot and what's not. The latest in fashion trends, things to look for on the horizon, and more. Fashion Beat will be your guide to what to wear today, tonight, and this weekend. Tune in every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Kids channel. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are talking to Dr. Elizabeth Stone of the State University of New York at Stony Brook, who is a professor of anthropology and one of the world's recognized authorities in Mesopotamian archaeology, specifically the archaeology of southern Iraq. And I was going to actually ask you a question, since we're talking about methods in archaeology and the types of of data sources that we use to integrate archaeological pictures and and patterns. And uh, one of the areas in which Dr. Stone has has, has done some extensive work is in the uh, merging the written and documented record with the archaeological record. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how those records mesh, how they are used to cross-index each other, and where they diverge, and, and what kind of information you can tell us about that? about Mesopotamia is that they wrote on clay. 
Um, so they didn't write on paper, and they didn't write on all of these kinds of materials that decay. Um, and clay preserves very well in the Mesopotamian climate. So essentially, if people kind of, I mean, in, I mean the stuff I did for my dissertation was a long time ago, uh, people would essentially have the same kinds of records that we tend to put in um, a bank deposit box. So uh, deeds of sale and inheritance and all these kinds of things. And they would just have them in a pot in the corner of their living room. And if they, uh, if, and then there was a, essentially a disaster where probably the rivers just shifted and everybody was just leaving town. And if you're leaving town, you don't need to carry those documents, so they left them behind. And so you can bring them up, and there they are sitting inside the houses that are being talked about. Um, so, you know, you own your house. If you keep your deed in the house, you're going to be talking about the house that, that's there. So there you can have some very, very kind of direct um, relationship between uh, what, is, what, is, what is going on what you know? What was really happening, and what you're digging up, which are just kind of the, the vestiges of, of, of life at that particular point. But then I think another example uh, is um, we excavated. We had a field project between uh, 1987 and 1990 at a site um, in southern Iraq, um, and the site was chosen because I was looking for an urban-sized site that was occupied for a very short period of time where we could do a survey and try to understand how the city was put together. And so this is the site I chose, um, and we had three teams. We were only actually in the field for five months altogether. Um, most of it was done during survey. And at, at the end of the first season, we found a lot of, um, we found a couple of inscribed pieces, and we found a lot of model chariots, which are really just model chariots, but they have pictures of the god on them. And uh, they had a lot of pictures of the god Nergal, who was the god of death. Um, mm -hmm. And, we were, you know, I was working with my epigrapher, Celtic Steinkeller, on this, and he said, you know, we really should be able to figure out what this site is. Um, and the other thing is I'd worked with a satellite imager and could see that the ancient Tigris was really going right by it, although we were a long way from the Tigris at this particular point. And, and at so that point, you were starting to actually chart the changing course of the drainage, right? Right, right, right. Well, there were many more branches of both the Tigris and Euphrates in the past than there are today. Um, and so he kind of, so at the end of this first season, he said, you know, I think this is probably Mashkan Shapir. And I wrote up the kind of archaeological stuff, and I handed it to him, and he was going to kind of write up the textual stuff, and I went back to Iraq. And one of the things we knew about Mashkan Chapter was uh, that um, King Sinan had built the city wall there. And so I thought, well, I should really go look for the city wall. So there was one day it was fairly quiet, and I kind of wandered around looking for the city wall, and I was beginning to find bits and pieces. And yeah, it looks like we've got a city wall. Right. And all of a sudden, there were a whole bunch of large pieces of cuneiform inscription sitting there. And they wound up being about 150 pieces of barrel cylinders. So these looked like kind of small barrels, and they had long, long, long inscription on it. But it was like a third, third piece that I picked up to look at. I could read Mashkan Shop. In this case, uh -huh. the article was out the window, and we knew the name of the site, and we knew what was that. But suddenly, that opens up a whole of information about what is at the site. And so again, I mean, another, one of the things we also knew was we were now looking at a planned site, because the inscription starts off saying how wonderful Selena was, and said that he built the city wall, which is what, what this was essentially recording, 
to increase its dwellings. That is, he was taking a village and turning it into a city by building a wall around it. Right. Um, and so if you're interested, which I am, in, in, you know, how does one conceptualize a city? If you've got an ideal city, how would you build it? This was it, uh, because this is what he planned. And, you know, one of the other things we knew was that it was supposed to have a palace, and we couldn't find a palace to save our lives. We, could, we found all kinds of other things, but we couldn't find a palace. But recently, because when we worked there, it was in the desert, it's now completely surrounded by irrigation water, and it's, it's high water table that allows one to see what the plan looks like. We found the palace, and the palace is as far away from the temple as possible. So they're both at opposite ends of the site. And that gives you an idea at that point. So we've got the historical information that made us, we know that's because it's a palace. We can see something that looks like a palace, therefore it is a palace. Right. But it also gives us an idea of the way people think about institutions. So the institutions are not all piled up together in the middle. Um, but they're really separate. So the palace has its sphere, the temple has its sphere, and then there's this third institution, which we don't know very much about, which is the assembly, which is the population. And that seems to, you know, if anything, the population center was in the middle. So, so based on this kind of excavation, it seems like you're starting to develop, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a blueprint for how these cities, smaller cities or even larger cities, are designed and constructed. And then all of a sudden you have some sort of a pathway to uh, or a prescriptive way to looking for the next site and how that might be structured. And you get some more. Does, that, does it pan out that way? I mean, are you able to take the lessons from that particular excavation and sort of superimpose them on another site and, and find replicating patterns? Well, I think, I think that's where the satellite imagery comes in. And yes, you know, one of those slightly complicating aspects is that what this means is that um, and consistently temple, you know, temple and palace looking structures seem to be located towards the edge of the site, which isn't great because the preservation of these traces tend to be better in the middle than on the edges. Um, so we tend to have parts of these buildings that we can see on the edges and then big domestic areas in the middle. But yes, it, it is looking very much as though it's replicated. Uh, maybe not when you get into the first millennium BC, that seems to be a point when you have a shift uh, with people like Nebuchadnezzar, um, and there you do begin to find a palace located close to the temple. Um, but that already is telling you something. Um, and then the other thing about that period is the houses suddenly get huge. Uh, so there's a huge change in, in the scale of architecture and the scale right. of, of buildings. It's absolutely instantly visible. So something really got rearranged at that particular point. But that tells you something, too, about, about what happened at the time. Are you starting to develop a picture with the satellite imagery and with the on the basis of the excavations as to how we can visibly see in the archaeological record sort of the uh, the emergence, the growth, the peak, and then the decline of the sites? Is is that starting to register in the in the uh, in the satellite imagery as well as being verified in the archaeological record itself? Well, I think the satellite imagery, you know, it's only going to give, I'm only looking at very short, short-lived sites because um, I need to know the date of the traces that I'm looking at. Right. Um, and so you're not, you're not, you can't see development because this is only going to show you, actually what it may be showing you is stuff, it's really showing you the stuff that's in the surface salt layer, and in some instances that's not even excavatable. Right. Um, that is, it, 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 it's, it's a kind of a remnant of something that was there but has now been destroyed by the high salt levels. Um, 
and um, so uh, I can't say that you can you can you, you where you can see development though is by looking at sites dating to different time periods, and then yes, you absolutely can see what's going on. And so, for example. Um, I talked about one pivot point, which is this real change that happens in the first millennium, but you right. also have a change that happens kind of in the middle of the third millennium, which is a complete change in terms of, I think, population density. That is, you do have cities before, but they look like they're very low-density cities and still had a lot of animals living in them, especially cows that seem to be going out into the marshes for, for fodder. And then suddenly you have the typical Mesopotamian pattern of absolutely dense housing, uh, with institutions, and you always had institutions on the edges, um, but that's also the time you begin to get the first palaces. Um, and are you, you able to temples ch- on the edges, and then you begin to get the palaces at the same right. moment as the cities suddenly get huge. What about the changing yeah. margins of the settlement through time? Can you track that reasonably well? No, because I mean that, that, that's what you can't do because you don't, you know, unless you've got detailed survey data. Right. You know, you don't. And most Mesopotamian sites really are. I mean, that happens sometimes. And I mean, there are. You know, there's one site which I'm having some. Once it gets cooler, some Iraqis are going to go visit and collect some pottery for me because I've got some very interesting architecture. But I've got the survey says that the first millennium site was smaller than the second millennium site, and I've got some architecture that seems to be at different orientations. And I suspect mm-hmm. that the one orientation is the early stuff and the other orientation is the later settlement on top of that. Um, but, but I'm really trying to look at sites that are, do not have a long history. Um, but then you can compare those sites as being typical of what's going on for that time period with things for another period. But if you've got a very long-lived site, um, surface material is not going to tell you what's going on. What about uh, the geography of of the landscape generally? Are you noticing changes uh, south to north, organizational changes, structural changes in the distribution of settlements, their matrices, and and, and, and how how the sites themselves vary, say, on a north to south gradient or any other kind of a relationship, say, between the site location and uh, even the drainages themselves, the Tigris and the Euphrates? Not so much, I don't think. I mean, I think there are some differences, but the problem is that the preservation, well, a couple of things. I mean, I can only really pick these things up in modern irrigated areas. And so there's some geographic areas of the of the Mesopotamian plain that I really can't see anything in because the site, you need a high water table, which means it has to be irrigated now. Um, And, you know, you do, you often find the different areas were occupied at different times, and that, that you get from the survey data. Um, and then that, of course, is then going to reflect what, and, and, and you know, I'm, I can only look at the end date of an occupation of a site. That's all I can see. Um, right. And um, so, you know, there are situations where I'm going to find that most of the sites for one period are going to be one area and most of the sites for another period are going to be another area. Not exclusively, however. Um, so, and I'm not seeing a whole lot of difference as you move from the way I've got, you know, a number of sites to look at as you move from one place to another. What about the changing role of the canal systems and the complex hydrography of uh, the relationship between the primary drainages, which are the obviously the Tigris and the Euphrates, and the construction and function of the canals 
through time? Competent. I mean, I have a student who's, who's writing a dissertation on irrigation. She's working primarily with text at the moment, um, and I'm hoping she's going to try and see if she can then look at the canal systems on the ground. The problem is how you date the canals. I mean, you really have, I mean, it almost looks like a kind of a pile of string um, right. in terms of, you know, canal cutting, canal cutting, canal cutting, canal, because you've got, you know, four or 5,000 years of canal digging, well, you know, more than that. Um, 7,000 years of, 7, years of canal digging. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about stratifying them. You know, this one's cut, cut through this one. Can you trace it out? What's cutting it? Um, but that's a very, very complicated process. And whether she's actually going to do it for her dissertation or a post-dissertation project, I don't know. Right. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you can tell the difference between a canal that was going through a settlement and was part of a structuring feature of the settlement and one that was cut through the settlement later. That you can see. Um, right. But you can't, you know, going then that far beyond the site, you get so far, and then, you know, somebody, some other canal comes in that's clearly later, and then it picks up the old levees. It gets very complicated. And the other thing, of course, is the impact of salt and siltation in the canal system and how that affects the agriculture, which is something that obviously was addressed by Adams many, many years ago. Is there any advance on that? Do we know anything more at this point about the relationship between the water budget, the salt, and the impact on the agricultural landscape? I mean, I think some of the things that that, that we know, know, which I actually spent some of the early stuff on, um, is that, you know, you had some major, major failures um, of, um, of the irrigation system, um, and that, you know, the entire southern, as my first article, like the entire southern Elysium was abandoned um, shortly after Hammurabi. Um, right. And what that seems to have been, and, and so Hammurabi and his, his ilk, were the first people who were ruling from Babylon, that is on the north end of the Elysium, or the up, upstream end of the Elysium instead of the downstream end. And, you know, we don't know what happened, but there's a suspicion that when he had a rebellion, what he tried to do was take people's water away and then could never get it back. Right. And so we then have several hundred years in which... Um, the whole South was called, you know, there's, a, there's the Kingdom of the Sealands, which is actually what we wound up, much to our surprise, um, excavating when we were in Iraq last, last Christmas. Um, and, you know, but, but the, all the major southern cities just have this period of abandonment. Sometimes the sand dunes come in between uh, for several hundred years at that point. So, and, and then when, when the water is brought back, um, you can actually see the canals taking it from kind of much closer to the modern Euphrates and kind of angling in and then picking up the old levees and then going down them. So it's a whole kind of engineering process to bring the rest of the illusion back up. And um, how does that, so how does that, yeah, like that, how does that square with the text? Does the text have anything to say about the, the entire problem of the salt and the silt and the agriculture? Very much, really. I mean, it, it, I mean, nobody, nobody really talks about what happened at this particular point. I mean, so that it, right. in a sense, I mean, the amazing thing to me is that uh, you know it was only. I mean, I got onto it because I was working on um, these texts, and you know, 
I was working on, again, this is my dissertation, I was working on texts from Nippur, and Nippur wasn't, there was a kind of two-part abandonment, and it wasn't abandoned in the first part, but it clearly really suffered, and a whole bunch of people were leaving town and selling property at fire sale prices, and you could just kind of see <laughs> that kind of right. the written record. Um, and then we get some more texts, and then they all came to a screaming halt. And, you know, this is a long time before the end of the old Babylonian period. And then I started looking at all these other settlements, and I realized that if you look at the date of the texts, they too all came, if they're in the south, they came to a screaming halt at the point you had that perturbation um, at Nippur. And then if they were further north, then they came to screaming halt at the same time as Nippur. And right. nobody came back for, for hundreds of years. You don't have any written documentation again from there from hundreds of years, but you do have it further north. And I think the problem was that the Assyriologists just look at the text and they say, oh, they're all old Babylonian, don't really care where they came from. Um, and so nobody really picked up on that until then. And then since then, people have done a certain amount of kind of geological stuff and can kind of, can kind of see what's going on. But so right. that, that, you can, that occurs in the text, but you have to be able to put it together and to be asking those kinds of questions, which Assyriologists really don't. I mean, that's not... not What's interest of them. Once you put them in that direction, then they can be really helpful. And on that note, we're going to take another break, and uh, we will be back in a few moments with our continuing discussion on Mesopotamian archaeology with Dr. Elizabeth Stone. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Just because you're a kid doesn't mean you don't have an important voice to be heard. You are our future, and you need a forum to be heard. Tune in to American Pulse on the Voice America Kids channel. We'll talk to the student leaders of America and find out what they're doing to make a difference today. You'll be inspired to start working now for a brighter future future later. American Pulse is heard live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Kids channel. It's time to lead by example. Ready for a revolution in diet and health? Confused about what to eat and how to prioritize your health concerns? Let's turn conventional wisdom on its head and rethink the old rules. Good health means real food, sound sleep, great supplements, and the right exercise. Join holistic nutritionist Beverly Meyer for the Primal Diet Modern Health Show. She'll help you rewrite your human owner's manual. Tune in Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There's a course offered on 7th Wave Network that you never saw offered in college. One that provides information on how to transform ancient wisdom teachings into everyday life. You'll learn how to create from your spirit and explore the world with all of your senses. Participation is encouraged. Enroll in Spirituality 101, the course you can't afford to miss with your host, Reverend Norma. Classes in session every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time in your favorite classroom, 7th Wave Network. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Shilden Ryan with a uh, final segment on our present discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Stone on the archaeology of Iraq. And uh, one of the questions that I think is on the minds of a lot of the listenership is uh, how doing work in Iraq has changed over the course of the past 30 years or 30 plus years. And uh, Dr. Stone, why don't you comment a little bit on how your research has changed in parallel with the conditions that uh, occur for archaeologists working as uh, basically foreign archaeologists in, in that country? What, what can you tell us about that? I think, you know, I mean, 1990 was a point when uh, everybody had to start working in Iraq with the invasion of Kuwait. And, you know, the situation after that got, uh, didn't really get much better. Uh, what about, be- what about before that? What about before that? I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I didn't have a problem getting a permit for a no-name site. Um, I mean, it, you know, it, it wasn't particularly easy. Digging during the Iran-Iraq War, you know, there were rockets coming into Baghdad, and there were a lot of food shortages and things like that. But, you know, we did, and, you know, yes, we were operating in the police state, and you were aware of that, and you just kind of hunkered down. But in terms of the, the, you know, the museum was very well run and very efficient, and, and once you were out in the countryside, we generally got on very well with our government representatives and with our workmen, and we really, we really didn't didn't feel anything, you know, we, we were aware, obviously, of, of the brutality of, of the Saddam regime. But, you know, the last season in 1990, I mean, everybody was just so happy that the Iran-Iraq war was over and people were, were really trying to relax at that point. So, you know, that, that, that situation was fine. Um, and then, I mean, after 2003, I spent quite a bit of time, well, some time in Iraq until it got really dangerous, and a lot of time working with Iraqis because we did a lot of training programs and tried to, you know, tried to kind of compensate a little bit for having invaded that country and so incompetently. Um, sure. I certainly got a, a very clear window in the complete disaster that was the, the Bremer um, administration in Iraq. I mean, they, you know, if they wanted to drive Iraq off the cliff, all of their policies would seem to be designed to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the most recent thing, though, is that, that we visited Iraq um, where we were actually guests of the uh, deputy governor of Dukar province, which is down in the south, um, last summer to kind of look around at the possibility of, of doing field work. And then we, we did field work in Iraq um, in the south uh, between December and January for about five weeks of this past year, and we were the first foreigners to work there. Of course, Americans worked there since 1990, and the first foreigners uh, since, I guess, 2001. Um, and it was fabulous. I mean, everybody was so nice. Um, and they fell over themselves to be nice. Um, you know, our representative was the director of excavations in Baghdad. The director general of antiquities drove down one day, a long drive, to say hi, and then drove back again. And, 
they wound up having all kinds of, you know, a bunch of very senior archaeologists who were working, um, kind of digging these pipes in the marshes before they get reflooded, but who were kind of on leave, and they all came and worked with us because they all felt that they'd been cut off for, you know, right. like 30 years. Um, right. You know, they really wanted to know and understand what's happened to archaeology in the past 30 years. Right. So it was just an amazing experience. Um, it was really wonderful. And I know that over the years you've also been involved in training Iraqi archaeologists. And uh, how has that worked? And and uh, what are you seeing? Are you seeing the results of that training and and uh, the expansion of uh, programs inside the country that are working on cultural heritage and and related issues? Um, I think you know it's difficult. I mean, it, it, we had this um, fourteen-week training program in Jordan in two thousand four. Um, but the problem was that, you know, what we thought we were going to do was to be able to do all kinds of follow-up. I mean, I had a USAID grant that was supposed to go on for three years, but then USAID in Baghdad and USAID Washington kind of fought, and then they just cut all the higher education things off after one year. And meanwhile, the security situation just collapsed, so all of the kind of follow-up that we thought we were going to be doing in Baghdad just became kind of impossible. Um and, you know, I have had some training programs in the States where I bring people over for a semester and especially train them in remote sensing and satellite imagery and, and computer mapping. Um, and, but again, they would tend to kind of go back into these rather dysfunctional institutions that they're in. I don't know, it's had a certain, certain effect. And we did have uh, four um, MA students who we brought over. Iraqis, um, but only one of them went back, and then she came back out, and then I guess another one is now back, and he's teaching in, in, in Mosul, and that's great, um, and I guess we had five students, and one of them is, is now doing, still is finishing her PhD, but I mean, the problem is the security situation then <laughs> deteriorated. Uh, they'd all be in the United States. They're all afraid to go back. Uh, the one who did the PhD was Christian, and so, you know, her whole family was displaced. So, I mean, this whole kind of swirl of, of the aftermath um, has really been incredibly destructive. Um, and so, and I, you know, I do right now, I mean, part one of the reasons we were able to go to Iraq is I have um, a PhD student uh, from Iraq who's, who's in many ways you know, the kind of archaeologist who's kind of bubbled up, you know, from from the kind of, and, and become very visible uh, because of all the things he's done on his own. gets thrown in jail every so often, but other than that, he's done enormous amounts of stuff. And so we now, are now trying to give him a really good and serious PhD. Um, and so that there are people who are emerging under those circumstances, but it's, it's, it's difficult um, and, um, you know, it really takes somebody who's, who's very special. Um, and he is very special. On the other hand, he spent, he spent you know, four years in jail under Saddam. So. <laughs> right, of course, yes. <laughs> it's a very complicated thing. And, I, you know, people who haven't done that have, uh, tend not to have the same kind of drive. Of course. So, um, and I, I, I think, you know, that there are still all kinds of kind of complications there. What about America? Are you are you training your American students uh, to potentially go back there, or are you training? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we had two American students at this site that we were doing. Um, so 
Uh, well, I was born in German, but she's got an American PhD. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't, you know, I mean, I think there are students who are really interested in the area and who've been doing dissertations kind of on the edges and who will be, you know, the next generation who are going to go back there. So, yeah, for sure. So, so do you see a few, and you see a future for doing that, or it's difficult to project, I suppose, at this point in time. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know it's a little bit complicated to know, you know, what's going to happen politically at the moment. I mean, when we were there, um, and, and this has been coming and going and coming and going since the Parliament was created, essentially. Um, that that it's a question of who antiquities is controlled by, and then who is the person who is the minister. And so traditionally, antiquities was always under the Ministry of Culture, which is right. a logical place for it. Um, but there's been a tendency to create a different ministry, which is the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities. Um, and the problem there is almost all of the tourists in Iraq are not tourists going to visit archaeological sites, but rather they are Shiite pilgrims. Right. And so tendency is for that ministry to come to the fore at a point when Maliki needs the support of Matada al-Sada, who is the, you know, he's always described as being an anti-American cleric. Right, yes. And he puts his maternal uncle into the position, at which point everybody we know in Iraq tears their hair and says it's a complete disaster. Um, And he's also you know, virulently anti-American. Um, on the other hand, you know, at the moment, the Tadwal Sadr is saying horrible things about Maliki, and the whole, part, you know, the whole government is frozen. So, at some point, they're going to have to, you know, we either call new elections. Apparently, Maliki, the Tadwal Sadr's attacks on Maliki actually strengthening Maliki in terms of popularity. So, either there'll be new elections, or at some point, some agreement will be made between Maliki and the Kurds and maybe Alawi. Um, and they'll put together a new government. And if they do that, I think it's less likely that uh, Mekhader al-Sadr's guy is going to be in charge. If he's not in charge, we wind up probably digging it up. If he was in charge, we don't. Right. So, you know, we'll just have to, we'll just have to kind of roll with the punches and see, see, what, see what's happening. But as I say, I mean, this guy has gone in and out and in and out and in and out several times uh, since you know, 2005, so 2006, I can't really go show up. Um, and I mean, generally, um, you know, everything comes to a screaming halt, and then everybody kind of says, this is really not a good thing, and then they throw him out, and then everything, they often give the antiquities back to culture, and then everything's fine for a while, and then it goes downhill again, and then it's fine. So, I mean, it's going to be a yo-yo, I think. Um, but, um, you know, it really depends on, you know, you really need to have some kind of stable government, and, and you know, that's the problem. What about, what is your impression of uh, the, stati- the state of the uh, the larger sites, the sort of the uh, the the Uruks and uh, Urs and Eridus and, and uh, uh, the major sites, have they been extensively damaged? Are they beyond repair? I mean, what's the, what's the uh, preservation condition? It depends what's going on. I mean, one of the problems that you had in the south is that um, after the first Gulf War, uh, the Shiite population rebelled against Saddam, along with the Kurdish population, 
Uh, if you remember, we, we put in no-fly zones in the south and the north, but we kind of allowed the Kurds to create a new country, but we left the Shiites under the control of Saddam. And one of the things he did is he drained the marshes. But one of the things that was designed to do was actually that removed the irrigation water for a large number of farmers in the south who had rebelled. Um, and so these people no longer have enough water to be able to make enough money to feed their families. And that resulted before the Second Gulf War in um, some quite intensive looting for a number of sites. Uh, and the Iraqi Department of Antiquities actually started doing 12 months a year excavations of some of the major ones coming in amongst the looting holes to try to, as a way of controlling the sites. And then immediately after the U.S. invasion, because no real control was put in, there was a huge wave of looting of archaeological sites. And there are a number of them that are pretty much all gone. And, you know, our site of Moscow Shop is heavily looted. Um, mm-hmm. and it was very badly damaged. Um, so I don't know if it's going back there. Um, but but they're, they're, they can tend to be kind of, mostly they tend to be spatially located towards the south and the east of the, of the Elysium. Um, but a lot of the other sites like Uruk and Ur and Eridu, they're fine. They, you know, they had site guards. It's, it's, all, it's a question of which ones had site guards and whether the site guards held. Um, uh, this thing is one which was badly damaged because the site guards actually started looting. Uh, wow. Whereas Nippur, for example, which is quite nearby, is fine because the site cards were loyal. So it really depends on you know how that all played out. And of course, you know the international trade in antiquities um, is kind of well. We have no idea where everything went because it's huge. Of course, of course. Um, but um, and it tends to take a very long time for it to emerge. And and I mean the good thing is that and it may never emerge, which is kind of good and bad because. You know, I mean, it's hard to know how, what, what, what should be done under those circumstances. Um, but one of the things, really probably because of the looting of the Iraq Museum, which everybody felt guilty about, um, is when they lifted the embargo on Iraq, they lifted on everything except antiquities. Which uh-huh. means that the economic embargo that was put in place in 1990 still holds for antiquities, which means it's illegal to sell any antiquity that was removed from Iraq um, without permission uh, from 1990 until the present. And that is something which is going to be difficult for the Christies um, of this world to get around. So because there are obviously a lot of... It, like if you do a black market right. world, but that, that's something different. I think on that note, we're going to have to round out our program. I want to express my appreciation to Dr. Elizabeth Stone for taking the time out to discuss these issues on the archaeology of Iraq. And let's be hopeful that work will continue in the future under more positive circumstances. So, uh, Dr. Stone, thank you so much for participating. And uh, we look forward to uh, speak uh, having another broadcast next week. Thank you so much. And until then, good night. And stay well. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.